Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. It's Tuesday, May 9th. I'm Brian Dean Wright, former CIA operations officer, and this is The Wright Report. A good day to you, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Right Report, your daily news podcast. I've got three briefs for you this morning that are shaping America and the world. First up, the White House is hosting leaders from Capitol Hill this morning to talk about the debt ceiling. But uh, what exactly is the debt ceiling and why should we care? Well, we are going to dive into that and get you some answers. Second, ladies and gentlemen, get out your maps and come with me this morning. We're off to Asia, where we are stopping first in the country of Fiji, where a guy there named Rambo is tearing down the government of China this morning. I've got some great details on that. Next, we head to the country of Myanmar, also called Burma, where a rebel group says that they are going to shut down a very critical mine that supplies about 10% of the world's tin And I'll explain why they are going to do that and how that decision is rather bad for you. Later, we close out the podcast with a study from Denmark showing that heavy marijuana use led to a 30% increase in cases of schizophrenia amongst young men. I'll share those very sad details. But first, let's get to our top story of the morning. In the next few hours, America's political leadership will gather at the White House to discuss the three-month-old standoff over the U.S. debt ceiling. Now, specifically, they will be discussing whether to raise the amount of debt that the U.S. can issue, currently set at around $31.4 trillion. So I want to help you understand what this meeting is all about today, and then you can decide who's right, who is wrong, and what we ought to do about this debt crisis. So let's start with some history, shall we? I want to take you back to the year 1917, and that was a busy one. The U.S. bought the Virgin Islands for about 25 million bucks in gold. Babe Ruth, he was still swinging a bat for the Boston Red Sox. And the U.S. government officially entered World War I. And that, ladies and gentlemen, led to some big changes in Washington, D.C. One of them was around the issuance of federal debt. Now, early in the year of 1917, the U.S. Treasury could only borrow money and issue debt with very specific instructions from Congress. So as one example, Congress would direct the Treasury to issue certain kinds of debt to build the Panama Canal, say a a one-year certificate or a a longer-term Treasury bond. But with America's entry into World War I, legislators believed that the Treasury needed some flexibility on how to fund the war effort. So they passed something called the Second Liberty Bond Act of 1917. And basically, Congress said, look, you guys at Treasury can issue debt in whatever length or whatever form you would like, so long as the total debt issued doesn't go above a certain figure. In other words, a debt ceiling. So that set up a pretty peculiar system where the U.S. House and Senate would vote on a bill authorizing the government to incur expenses. But... If we've already hit the debt ceiling, well, the Treasury can't issue any more debt. 
Instead, Congress has to vote again to raise the debt ceiling. So if I could use a very rough analogy here, it would sort of be like if you agreed with your spouse to buy a car and they went out and bought it. And then they came home with a new car and you said, you know, I've been checking the uh, checking book and the banking accounts and uh, looks like our debt levels are just tapped out. So I don't think we can afford that car. And then your spouse smacks you right in the nose and says, you should have thought about that before you bought the daggone car with me. All right. Well, for better, for worse, that's sort of the quirkiness of the American system since 1917. Right. And that takes us to more modern times. So last year, under the prior Democrat-led Congress, they voted to authorize a massive increase in spending on all sorts of things. But the problem is that that massive spending is going to take us past the debt ceiling that currently sits at $31.4 trillion. And if the debt ceiling doesn't get increased by Congress with that second vote by June 1st, give or take, or if there aren't budget cuts that prevent us from hitting that number, well, the U.S. government will begin to default on some of its debt. Okay, well, so what? What happens if the federal government were to default on some of its debt? Well, the general consensus is, well, it would be bad. But how bad, nobody knows for sure, because it's largely never happened, except for one tiny weird example back in the 70s, but forget about that for the moment. If we were to look at other countries when they defaulted, all right, what we see are things like spikes in interest rates or dips or crashes in the stock market and, a, frankly, a recession. Right, so that takes us to the meeting later today at the White House. So you are going to hear two very different arguments about what to do next. On one hand, you are going to hear Mr. Biden and his Democratic Party say, look, Congress has already authorized these expenses, so knock it off, Republicans, and raise the debt ceiling. To which the Republican leaders are going to respond with, no, sir, because you see, there was an election last November, and we Republicans won the House. And we won, in no small part, because the American people said to us and to Washington, D.C., stop with this crazy spending. All right, get a hold of that deficit and bring down the national debt. In other words, Republicans are arguing that it doesn't matter that the old Congress authorized that additional spending. Right, That old Congress from the Democratic Party, that doesn't exist anymore. There's a new Republican sheriff in town, as it were, and we want to renegotiate that massive spending bill. Or... Find some sort of deal that raises the debt ceiling with a guarantee of limiting future spending. Okay, so those are the basic arguments that you will likely hear today. And I'll let you decide who's right or which argument is more compelling. But if I might offer up my own analysis and opinion, folks, let me offer up this. America has a $31.4 trillion national debt, and that gets worse each time that we run a deficit and we bump up this ceiling. And to be clear, that has been happening now for decades. So at what point do we pay that down? Well, America has not had a budget surplus in 22 years, right? That's according to the U.S. Treasury. And so that begs the question, when are we going to do it at all? Although some people would say, do we actually need to pay down the debt? Uh, why is that important? Well, the answer is actually tied to the brief that I gave you back on April 12th about the U.S. dollar. So definitely go back and listen to that episode on April 12th if you haven't done that already. But listen to this one today first, of course. 
But look, the bottom line is this. From the April 12th episode and talking about this one today, here's the deal. When you hold a lot of debt and then interest rates go up, as they are right now, you have a harder time servicing that debt, right? In other words, let's say that you have $100,000 in credit card debt. Now, so long as the credit card company charges you, say, 0% interest and you can afford the minimum payments, well, that $100,000 of debt, not really that big of a deal. But let's say the interest rates go up to 2%. Okay, well, maybe you have to cut back on restaurants and maybe going on a big vacation. Uh, but otherwise, you're all right. So bottom line is there's some pain there once those rates go up a bit, but you can manage it. But what happens if rates shoot up to 5%, 9%, 15%? Well, you, my friend, are going to have to get a second job or you're going to have to, I don't know, move back in with your mama because you're going to go broke. You are going to have a harder time servicing your debt with those higher interest rates. And so that's the fear, roughly speaking, with a nation that holds a large amount of debt, right? It's not a problem until, well, it becomes a problem. But unlike you and I, America can't simply, you know, declare bankruptcy or move back in with our mama, right? Unless England wants to take us back. But anyway, for me, that is how I think of this whole debt ceiling debate, right? I actually earnestly understand the position of the Democrats that the last Congress has already authorized these expenses. So just get along with it. But folks, as interest rates are going up and our debt is becoming more expensive to service, I think that we are playing with financial fire here and we are going to get burnt, right? That's even more of a concern when you listen to that April 12th brief that I gave you and consider that on top of this issue, our debt is now riskier in the eyes of investors all around the world because of what we did to Russia in February of last year. All right, so that's my opinion and my analysis on this, but could I be wrong? Yeah, you bet. For a long time, people have been making this argument that I just made for you. But you know what? So far, Washington, D.C. has been able to spend without a problem. We can still issue our debt at relatively low rates. But is that always going to be true? No. And so for me, rather than push that future burden onto our kids or our grandkids, I would like us to be more fiscally prudent now. Right? I would like us to dial back effectively what is the gambling and reduce our expenses and hold the line on that debt ceiling. But to be honest with you, I suspect that politicians in Washington, D.C. will eventually buckle under the pressure and they are going to keep spending. Never mind the risk to our future generations. I just uh, hope the British will take us back when we go broke. Prince William does seem to be nice. Anyway, with that, ladies and gentlemen, let's take our first break of the morning. Now, most of you likely won't hear any ads, so enjoy the ad-free experience, and we will be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report. Let's continue with our briefs this morning with a pivot towards international news. And for the next two briefs, you might want to get out a map on your phone or your computer or in your mind. And come with me this morning as we head off to Asia, specifically the island nation of Fiji. That is a country that is in the deep south of the Pacific Ocean, along with America, Samoa, and other countries like Australia, which is much further to its west. Now, we've talked about Fiji a bit in the past, and it's all been focused on our series called The Battle for the Pacific, 
And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the fight between China and the United States for influence and supremacy amongst those Pacific Island nations, which, of course, is going to be very important in the event of a war between Beijing and Washington, D.C. All right. So for years, the country of Fiji was led by a prime minister with the last name of Bayanamarama, and he was pulling Fiji further away from the United States and Australia and closer to China. Well, back in December, voters in Fiji tossed out Mr. Bayanamarama in favor of a new leader, a man named Sedeveni Rambuka, although he's known by his nickname Rambo. Well, Rambo is living up to his name this morning, and that actually takes us to our news. So two weeks ago, Prime Minister Rambo was supposed to meet with China's Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs, sort of a Deputy Secretary of State. Well, at the last minute, Rambo decided to send the Chinese a bit of a message. He decided to send his deputy instead of going himself. Now, to be clear, Mr. Rambo said that there was a family commitment, but Australian press is reporting that he was actually back at work when the Chinese arrived. Well, regardless, that made the Chinese government very angry. According to the Asia Times, they wanted to meet with Rambo directly so that they could discuss his drifting away from China and towards their adversaries in the United States and Taiwan. They also wanted to discuss why Rambo had canceled China's training of Fiji's police force last January. Well, it didn't matter because Rambo was out. Well, okay, he wasn't really, but he, that's what he told him. So, so that's the latest out of Fiji this morning. And if I can just offer you one short piece of analysis and opinion, it is exceptionally rare that a country stiff arms the Chinese government without apology. I mean, we can't even get that from our own White House these days, but Fiji of all places can do it. Although then again, the prime minister's nickname is Rambo. So I guess he's living up to the movies, especially by the way, Rambo 3, when Sylvester Stallone says, there is no rescue team. It's just me. Anyway, that does sound like the kind of political leadership I might like. Long live Rambo, ladies and gentlemen. All right. For our next brief, let's keep those maps out. And we are going to stay in Asia, although we are going to travel quite a distance north and west. We're going to pass over the countries of Papua New Guinea, Indonesia, Vietnam, Laos. And then we're going to slow down just over Thailand. Now, Once you're there on your map, you are going to see a country nestled between India, China, and Thailand, and it is called Myanmar, or as some of us might remember, it was called Burma. Now, this country is important for one special reason that you might not know about, and that is tin. Now, most of us probably think about tin, uh, well, we think about tin cans, but tin is vitally important for the creation of electronics and batteries. So, for instance, it's used to solder or glue together different parts of a computer chip. Well, 10% of the world's tin supply comes from Myanmar. But that 10% has a very special role in the global economy. Because as you'll see in just a moment, that 10% gets sent to Chinese buyers in a nearby province who smelt it for use in Chinese factories. And, of course, those factories pump out the products that, well, better or for worse, so much of the rest of the world buys. But we've got a problem, ladies and gentlemen, with that tin from Myanmar. All because the local government there announced just a couple of weeks ago that it was going to shut down tin operations starting August 1st. So here's what we know about what's going on this morning, as reported by Reuters News, Mining.com, and Mining Weekly. And let's start with just a little bit of history. 
Throughout the 1900s, Myanmar, or it was then called Burma, produced quite a bit of tin, especially before World War II. But over the years, there were fights, well, between lots of people, but certainly the colonial powers like Britain. Then there were internal civil wars between ethnic groups and different kinds of communist forces. And all that chaos, that went on for decades, and that caused tin production to dwindle to virtually nothing. But then in 2013, there was a major discovery. So if you look on your maps, right along the Myanmar and China border, there is a city called Pansang or Pangkam. And if you look just a little bit west to the mountains and through the jungles, you will find the Manma Mine. And that mine, ladies and gentlemen, has a whole bunch of tin in it. In fact, future output at the time was guessed to be around 10% of the world's supply. And that's exactly what it has turned out to be. But folks, that area is under the control of a rebel group called the United Wa State Army. And that has created some problems for international buyers because that army is sanctioned by the U.S. and others for their involvement in the global trade of drugs from heroin to meth. But there is one set of buyers who has had no problem with buying from that sort of druggy army, right? And that would be Chinese buyers from the neighboring province of Yunnan. Well, once those Chinese buyers, you know, snatch up that tin from Myanmar, they smelt it. And then they send it along to Chinese factories. And that includes factories that produce products for companies like Apple and General Electric and many, many others that you probably have in your home. Now, I, I want to emphasize something. I want to emphasize how important this Myanmar tin is to China and their factories. All right. So consider this. About 10 years ago, Beijing got 100% of its tin from Myanmar. Now, since then, that number has dropped a bit to around 77% of their supply. But the point remains that China's factories run largely on tin from Myanmar. And that means, folks, that the goods that you purchase, well, they may not get made or there will be delays or price increases if, of course, China doesn't get that tin. Right, which takes us to our news this morning. The United Wa State Army and its Central Economic Planning Committee announced on April 17th that they would shut down tin mining operations in their part of the country to, quote, preserve the remaining resource. They added that much of the mine's operations had gone to waste. Although it's not clear what exactly they're saying here because the rebels operate the mine. So it could be that they're upset with the Chinese buyers in that Yunnan province and they're playing hardball, or maybe there's an internal fight within the rubble group. But regardless, tin markets reacted with alarm. Prices popped up 15% initially. So where things go from here, folks, is debatable, right? Some analysts at, for instance, Citibank said that there's quite a bit of tin in storage in China. Plus, there's growing supply from nations like the Congo in Africa and Australia. So those countries might offset any loss in supply from Myanmar. And yet, if we once again look at our maps, it's pretty clear that the tin mine in Myanmar is very close to those smelting facilities in Yunnan province, which means that if outside supplies have to come in from, say, the Congo or Australia, they're going to have to go quite a distance to reach that Yunnan province, which, as you probably see, is both landlocked and pretty isolated. In other words... Greater shipping costs will eventually trickle down to consumers like you. 
So all told, ladies and gentlemen, that is why I will be watching what happens in Myanmar over the next three months and see if this problem at the Manma mine gets resolved. I'll keep you posted. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude this morning's episode of The Right Report. But I've got one more thing before I let you go. So enjoy this next break, and we will be right back. Welcome back to The Right Report with one more thing before I let you go. So two weeks ago today, the state of Delaware became the 22nd state to legalize recreational marijuana. So you can add that to the other 15 states that allow medical marijuana. And the trajectory is pretty clear, right? America is embracing weed. Now, this has been a controversial issue for decades. I mean, I I recall the, the Just Say No program of Nancy Reagan back in the 1980s. But I also recall the counter argument that weed was much safer than booze, at least according to the supporters of the legalization movement. But the truth is, we don't have a lot of good data or research on the long-term effects of using marijuana, especially for what we might call heavy or daily use. In other words, for those folks who use marijuana, you are the national guinea pigs. Well, this morning, we have another set of guinea pigs to look at. The country of Denmark has offered up some research that says that heavy use of marijuana leads young men in particular to develop an increased risk of schizophrenia. Women, for what it's worth, were less affected. So here's what we know from that study published last week in the journal Psychological Medicine. So researchers at the Danish Institutes of Health and the mental health services in the capital region of Denmark analyzed health records of 6 million people in Denmark over a 50-year period. And this is what they found. As many as 30% of the cases of schizophrenia amongst men, a young age, actually 21 to 30, those cases were likely caused by their heavy use of marijuana. Now, interestingly, the effect was less pronounced amongst women. Only about 4% of the schizophrenia cases could be traced back to their marijuana use. Now, this isn't exactly earth-shattering, right? Previous studies of varying quality have suggested that daily or near-daily use of marijuana will lead to a number of bad health effects to include psychological impairments. But the sheer size of this study, right? Millions of people over such a long period of time, 50 years, well, that lends credence to the growing concern about heavy weed use and mental illness. And yet, to be fair, Danish researchers say that there are still some unanswered questions here. So, for instance, they were unable to determine the potency of the marijuana that was being consumed by the users. And that could actually help explain both the increase generally and the spike specifically amongst young men, because perhaps they're users of the, well, harder stuff. But still, the bottom line, ladies and gentlemen, is that we have long heard the argument that weed is better than, say, booze. And that doesn't appear to be universally true. Or as one of the Danish researchers said, quote, this study adds to our growing understanding that marijuana use is not harmless, end quote. Well, we are going to find out soon enough, aren't we? In addition to the states that I mentioned earlier, CNBC reported yesterday that there are four other states considering legalizing weed too. Those states include Minnesota, Ohio, Florida, and Pennsylvania. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we conclude your morning brief.
As always, I will see you tomorrow, God willing. Until then, I leave you with the creed of every good spy and every wise American. They're the words from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Good day.